Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And welcome back to Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your hosts. Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is still Kurt Damon. That's Kurt, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders. You can find Kirk at KirkDMN, and you can find this podcast at LGGPod. Uh, we need to start with a shout-out to uh, all of you who voted in our poll uh, yes, um, I'd like to thank all of those who voted for me. So, thank the Academy. Oh, wait. You lost. <laughs> so if, if you didn't listen to our last episode, we did a rundown of our Kenobi predictions. And after including all of the fractional points and everything else, <laughs> it boiled down to Kirk and I were like five-sixths of a point apart. And we had one question, uh, prediction, that we weren't clear on. Kirk had suggested that they would introduce a new Jedi character. And uh, Kirk asserted that uh, Reva counts as a new Jedi. I, uh, I contested gently that proposition, and we punted to the, the, the listeners and put a poll on Twitter, which started out uh, rip-roaring in my favor, uh, 100% in favor of no, Reva is not a Jedi. On Wednesday, I was prepared to claim victory, but then the countervote started, <laughs> and uh, uh, it closed the gap. So uh, it wound up, I think, 57-43 in favor of Reva is not a mm-hmm. Jedi, which means I'm right, Kirk's wrong, and I win. <laughs> I, I'm, def- I'm declaring a false vote. Yes. Um, I yes. need the recount, and I need to you know, get whoever is the electioneer in here yes. so they can discuss whether or not they should be counting things. Well, we maybe to have some congressional hearings on this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So today's episode is going to be about the Andy Warhol case. And before those of you who are not art fans, turn it off. This is really about uh, fan fiction. Uh, this is the doctrine of copyright law that we discussed ad nauseum in our three-part series in our first season about fan fiction, covered again last year in the fourth of our three-part series. And now we're doing a fifth one where we're going to talk about fair use and how it applies uh, in the context of the Andy Warhol Prince Portrait Dispute. Uh, so we're going to be talking about photo- photography and art, but really this analysis is the same analysis courts go through when it comes to is your fan fiction uh, a fair use or is it a derivative work? Yeah, and that's it. And the thing to really get into in conjunction with this is in many respects, the only reason this case is making it to the Supreme Court is because this is an incredibly valuable piece of art. Yes. Um, you know, fan fiction isn't going to make it to the Supreme Court because it's not worth it to fight to that level and to spend the attorney's fees to get there. So that's why we have this case coming out of expensive works of art, uh, as opposed to necessarily coming out of, you know, hey, I made, you know, a plush version, um, you know, of some random Disney character. Have I committed, you know, a a fair use or not? Um, What you have coming out of this is instead we have a very, very famous work of art, which is extremely valuable um, by a famous artist. And we have a, what I would say is a famous underlying piece of art, too, because this yes. is related to two different pieces of art. Lesser known, but but equally important. Yeah, lesser known, equally important. In some sense, I'd say it's not necessarily even lesser known. It's less recognized yeah. because it's a little more ubiquitous. So let's, let's get into the facts here. So um, uh, most of you probably know who Andy Warhol is, but let's cover him really quickly. Uh, Warhol, his original name was Warhol. Is, I think, is he Polish? Polish, I believe. Yeah, it. Warhol, I mean, it kind of makes sense. Uh, Warhol was a, a pop artist uh, who was active, especially in the 1960s and 70s, uh, passed away in the late 1980s from uh, complications from a surgery, I think. Um, but he uh, he coined the phrase 15 minutes of fame. Uh, everybody's a celebrity, but he was really involved in 1960s celebrity culture and especially celebrity portraiture and pop art. 
Um, he produced uh, The Velvet Underground, uh, and he was famously shot by uh, a radical feminist in the 1960s, <laughs> uh, who was later diagnosed with schizophrenia, so you know she can be uh, understood there. Um, but uh, anyway, v- very important uh, uh, figure, openly gay man in the 1960s, in a time where very few gay people were willing to be openly gay. Um, just uh, an institution unto himself, and he kind of invented his own whole style of doing these celebrity portraits. And I believe he also, just given the idea from the portraits and the, the idea of the value of the artwork, I'm not sure if it's still true as it may have just been eclipsed, but for a long time, Warhol is the only modern artist and definitely by far the highest grossing modern artist in secondary auctions um, and stuff like that. He was not hugely successful during his lifetime, is my understanding. He was successful. Yeah. He was definitely influential. He was successful. But, you know, since his death, his works have sold for tremendous amounts yeah. of money. Typical of artists. Yeah, typical of artists. Um, and I know he had the most expensive modern age painting for a while, but I think that may have just been eclipsed. Yeah, and um, he's... Uh He's particularly notable because of the celebrity thing. You know, we don't. You know, this is pop art, not what we would call high art. Yeah. Uh, and you know, it's often viewed as a lesser form of art. But basically, one of the ways you can tell that somebody is is has achieved iconic status as an artist is if you refer to their art by their name. Do you have a Warhol or don't you? Yeah, exactly. So Warhol has definitely reached the point where saying, "Oh yes, I have a Warhol. It's hanging in the, in the foyer." You know, so. He, he's there, right? Yeah. Like a Jackson Pollock. He, he's there. So whatever you think of the merits of his art, uh, it is sufficiently important that he's a famous artist. Yeah. Uh, the work in question, um, well, let's start at the beginning of this. Uh, this all started in 1981 when a, uh, a famous photographer named Lynn Goldsmith, also active in the 1960s, uh, took a picture of uh, the uh, late artist formerly known as Prince. Prince. Uh, Goldsmith was also active in photography for celebrity portraiture. Uh, Warhol was more uh, art. Uh, Goldsmith was photography. But she did a lot of celebrity portraits, uh, did a lot of them for musical album covers. Uh, So these two would have overlapped a lot in the 1960s and 70s in terms of the subject matter that they were interested in and, and really how they framed their respective art. Yeah, so, I mean, I think one of the key things to keep in mind is while we'd say the underlying portrait here is not as well-known as the Warhol is, that's probably because Warhol is so well-known, not because Goldsmith is a, you know, an unknown artist. Not not like a hack or anything. And (laughs) it's just, there aren't a lot of photographers that are that well-known because just of the way their work tends to be used. And and also, yeah, a lot of these things tend to be used from it. You know, they tend to be used, as she said, album covers. You know, you're seeing in some sense commercial exploitation as opposed to necessarily being placed in a museum. Um, you know, and you can get into the whole distinctions between what makes great art and those types yeah. of areas. But yeah, we have we have what is a substantial artist behind Warhol as well. The, yes. This this underlying piece of work we're going to talk about is not an insubstantial piece of art of its own. And then uh, Lynn Goldsmith created a, a company that represented her and other photographers and licensed out their works. And in 1981, uh, Goldsmith had uh, then kind of an emerging artist, Prince, uh, come into her studio to sit for some photographs. And she did his makeup. She picked out the cameras, the lenses, uh, the, the settings on the camera. She arranged the lighting because she wanted to capture, uh, at least according to the pleadings, she wanted to capture his uh, sort of nervousness, anxiety, and vulnerability as an emerging artist who is making what was really at the time kind of experimental, unconventional yes. music. And for those of you, I mean, listening to this today, you know... Probably seems quaint, right? Yeah, it seems <laughs> quaint. It, it's that hard way. to imagine Prince as being kind of a relatively unknown and very edgy artist yeah. in many respects. Especially, and imagine him being like insecure or, or anxious. Like yeah. that is not what I think of when I think of Prince. I just think of a brand. You think 
and the, the brain way. is the yeah. opposite of that, you know? <laughs> it is bold, audacious, and unapologetic. Yeah, and that's it was really not the way he started his career. Um, I think, you know, in, in some sense you can kind of look at it and say it's like a lot of, you know, very iconic artists of today did not necessarily start in that yeah. position. Nirvana is another great example of like a band yeah. that kind of came out of nowhere which was not expected to necessarily be anything until suddenly it was. Yeah. I think Prince is kind of along those, you know, obviously he has an amazing voice, you know, he had a, you know, a wonderful knack for marketing, um, you know, and stuff like that. But it's at the beginning of his career, this was a relatively new thing and we didn't know whether or not he was yeah. going to In be 1981, successful. even if you were into music, there was a good chance you may not have heard of him yet. Yeah. You know, kind of like if, uh, Nirvana in 1991, uh, you may not yeah. have heard of him yet. <laughs> exactly. Um, okay, so uh, 1981, Goldsmith uh, takes a sequence of photographs uh, at the time, she was doing it for Newsweek, uh, but the copyrights were held by her, or rather by her company, uh, for licensing out. Fast forward to 1984, and Vanity Fair wants to have Andy Warhol do a series of images for Prince for a magazine cover. And they needed to license uh, what's called a reference, uh, or artist reference or a portrait reference. They needed a starting point for what they wanted Warhol to work with. And so uh, I'm not sure exactly how it happened, but they got in touch with uh, Goldsmith's organization, and the organization licensed one of these photos from the 1981 sitting, uh, originally for Newsweek, licensed it to Vanity Fair that they could put it on the cover and do a quarter-sized image in the magazine for the article, which is what they did. And that should have been the end of it. <laughs> yeah, that should be the end of this in conjunction with it. And it's, what we talk about here is routine. Yes, I mean, this, this happens, happens every all week. the time. The <laughs> fact that they had a license written down at all was remarkable in the 1980s. So uh, that, that all got done. Not a big deal. But then Andy, <laughs> being Andy, made more. Yeah. Um, he, I, I don't know why, we don't know why, but uh, something about the photo or the subject matter must have appealed to him or, you know, it's Andy Warhol, this is what he does. Uh, he made a bunch more photos after that, which uh, Goldsmith didn't realize existed. Uh, in fact, she didn't even know about the original license. Her company did it, not her directly, until Prince died in 20, the 2010s, 2016, yeah, somewhere there. Really. Yeah, mid, mid 2010s. He died, and then the photographs, or not the photographs, the Warhols of Prince yeah. and keep in mind the, became the, famous. The, what Warhol did was essentially screen print over the photographs. Yeah, he modified them. Of the Started with them, added color, uh, changed shadows, changed shading. Uh, this is all in the court pleadings, which we will link to on Twitter, and they have all the, the stuff in there. So you can read the yeah. Second Circuit uh, decision. You can see what it looks like side by side. And this is a very common thing Warhol did if you look through his work. There's a number of uh, the Marilyn Monroe series is by far his most famous that you know he did where he basically did variety of screen prints of different colors different textures over the same underlying photograph he did this he didn't just do it in portraiture he even did this in conjunction yep. with underlying photos of things uh, he has a famous one in conjunction with the electric chair and with sing sing prison um, you know things like that so it's it's one of the, it's this a very distinct prints, style yeah. like if i just showed you a warhol and didn't tell you what it was you you recognize you'd be yeah, like yeah I've seen those yeah. even if you don't know Warhol you'd be like you know what I've seen stuff like that before you'd recognize it that's why we have the, the thing as called a Warhol yeah uh, it's it's that distinctive of a style and historically he's largely gotten away with this on grounds yeah. that well it's Andy Warhol, Warhol that's what he does and we yeah and we've joked about that on this yeah. program the Warhol we call it the Warhol rule there is no bright line <laughs> in fair use except the rule Warhol rule if Andy Warhol does it it's fair use yeah and and that's we jokingly did that and we jokingly have done that because in some sense what you bump up against is Andy Warhol is so famous for doing yes. what is and basically has to be covered by fair use for him to be able to do it at all yeah. you bump into the if, he, if 
he can't do it. Nobody can. Yeah. So therefore, he's the one bright line that says you get it. It's sort of the same way as you know. It's the uh, if Larry Flint has free speech, everybody has yeah. free speech. It's, it's an interesting <laughs> concept if you think about it. Like if you try something new that seems like it might be copyright infringement, and you just get away with it for long enough. At some point, we kind of institutionalize that approach and just kind of shrug our shoulders and say, eh, whatever. Yeah. Well, that didn't happen here. Uh, it didn't happen here. Well, it did for, for a while. while. <laughs> then Goldsmith found out about the, the Warhols and uh, did not care for it. And let's see if I get the, the procedural posture correct. It, was, it started out with them, I think, trying to work out some kind of compensation for, for her organization. Yeah. Uh, and Andy Warhol's foundation kind of preemptively sued her and her foundation for what we call a declaratory judgment. Normally, you don't sue people unless you're demanding money, which is you know what Goldsmith's uh, company would be doing. But if you think a lawsuit is reasonably likely for strategic reasons, you might file a lawsuit in advance asking the court to issue the opposite, a declaration that you don't owe yeah. anything and that it's fair use as a matter of law. The, the basic thing behind declaratory judgment is in some sense, if you look at it, if I was going to assert that, hey, you infringe this thing or you owe me money, you did something wrong, but I never actually go to court, but I keep asserting it, it's almost a restraint of trade. Yeah, like you keep saying these things, and then we get, then you can't license stuff. Or the the status of whatever it is that's in dispute is unclear, and you just want it to be settled. And the side that should file the lawsuit hasn't done it yet, or won't do it, and continues to cause problems. Yeah. Now we don't know if that's what's happened here. Sometimes the litigators will just file for it's called a, we call them a declaratory yep. judgment. File for them aggressively because they want to fix venue or get into a certain uh, circuit, and that may be the case here because this whole case is about what we call a circuit split. Different parts of the federal judiciary handle this part of the fair use analysis differently. Uh, And this one wound up in the Second Circuit, that's New York. They issued a judgment, and it is now going to the Supreme Court to decide, do they need to fix? Is there a circuit split here that needs to be fixed so that we have uniform federal law? I know that seems weird. The uniform, the federal law would not be uniform, but it is a running joke in copyright when people say, is this a fair use? We say, depends. What state did you draw it in? <laughs> yeah. And, and those are the other things where, the, to give just a little bit of procedural, one of the big purposes of the Supreme Court is to resolve circuit splits. There are multiple different circuits in the United States, which are the different federal areas yeah. where there's courts. Eleven numbered circuits, the federal yep. circuit, and then there's the Court of Federal, federal Claims. claims. Yep. yep. So it, the, the numbered circuits are the key ones because it's just sort of the way they work is all geographical. Within those, there's also individual federal courts. So example, yeah, the there's a federal courts. court here, district courts in, the, in St. Louis, which is the Eastern District of Missouri. What the idea is is that you're supposed to have within sort of each area law sticks. And so yes. the idea is that when the law is what it is, future cases rely upon that law. So the example of it is if you had a district court in St. Louis say, I find, you know, for identical facts, I find for the plaintiff, if then in Kansas City, which is the Western District of Missouri, they were to say, no, we find for the defendant, you end up with a district court split where these two district courts have disagreed with each other in their interpretation of what the law should be in the circuit. Those cases, when they go up to the circuit court, the circuit court of appeals, the eighth circuit for us, eighth circuit for us, they would come in and they would say, look, we need to resolve this. One of the two of you is right and one of you is actually wrong. How is this supposed to be decided? They come up with what it is. Now, they may even say you're actually both right because the law is between this, stuff yep. like that. But they try to resolve it. You can also have that same level at the circuit level. And if you have that same thing happen at the circuit level, the idea is that the Supreme Court's supposed to come in and say, no, this is what it is. And since our precedent governs the entire country, all circuits have to find this way. This is a pretty common problem, too. As you look out the window, we see the territory of the Seventh Circuit right across the Mississippi <laughs> River. Illinois is in the Seventh Circuit. And so it is, you know, if we're, if we're doing casework over in Illinois, we may be under a different set of federal legal precedents than we are here. Uh, 
so the Eighth Circuit covers Minnesota, Iowa, uh, Missouri, and I think is Arkansas. You know better than I do. Yeah, I don't know. Well. I think, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, maybe the Dakotas are all Eighth Circuit. Uh, they're roughly geographic. The one that's weird is that one of the circuits split, so I think the Fifth got split into multiple circuits now. But uh, the, the Ninth Circuit is one of the most famous. That's the West Coast. Uh, they're famous because uh, they do a lot of the cases involving, obviously, film. Yeah. Uh, so they are really up on copyright issues in the film industry. And the Second Circuit is famous for copyright also uh, because it handles uh, uh, Broadway, a lot of radio, television, all the industries in New York. Um, and for copyright purposes, one court is designated by law as setting all the statutory rates. That is the, I think, the Southern District of New York. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so it's called the rate court. So uh, certain certain courts are more important than copyright analysis than yeah. others. Let's say we have a circuit split between the Second and the Ninth Circuit. That would be a big deal. That would be a big deal. Now, if we now have a case come up for us in the Eighth Circuit... What's the law? How are yeah. we supposed to know what it is? Because these circuits are disagreeing on what the Supreme Court says. So we really bump into a scenario that says the Eighth Circuit doesn't know how to decide this because we're not bound by either of those two decisions. We're supposed to be bound by the reasoning of the Supreme Court that they made their decision on, but they're disagreeing on what that says. So those are the things where you, you have these disagreements of the law. And the basic thing to sort of keep in mind is this is not a bug of the system. This is a feature. It's yeah, supposed this is to work this work. way. That you, you basically eventually get up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, look, we're going to tell you what it is. We're going to resolve this dispute. And then all the circuits know. So we're going to come between the second and the ninth and say, guess what? Second circuit, you're right. So therefore, now as the eighth circuit, we can look at it and say, okay, the second circuit's reasoning is right. So that's the way we follow the, the same reasoning. Yeah. And so and you, you often find that it really boils down to everybody else looking at the second because it's got New York and the ninth because it's got LA <laughs> and trying to pick between the two. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, I think that's what we saw with the character copyright, that one of the decisions came out of the second. One came out of the ninth, yeah. and so depending on where you're at, you know you're, the rules may be different. And this is so, common because we said it depends. You know, the second circuit has Broadway, the ninth circuit yeah. has Hollywood. They often have to disagree on what you want something to be. Now, the one to keep an eye on is the sixth circuit because it has Nashville. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see how that plays out with the music industry. The overall uh, procedural posture of the case at the Supreme Court is that certiorari has been granted, so the court is going to hear it. An oral argument is currently set for Wednesday, October twelfth. So. Um, you know, once we get through all this, uh, we'll circle back and see uh, kind of what happened, oral argument, and then the decision we would think would come out probably this time next year. Yeah, I mean, it'll probably be a late, a late in the term decision. Yeah. Probably not a terribly late one because this is it's copyright law. This isn't going to be hugely controversial, so it's not necessarily going to be an end of yeah. term one for them. Um, but it's one where this is going to require some writing. The thing I think is going to be most interesting about the the certiorari and the determination from this is going to be where the ju various justices fall. And this is one where, you know, quite frankly, our chief justice may decide it because he's sort of known as being the deal maker. Yes. Um, and whatever he sort of sees as being, you know, the appropriate decision may be what it is. The real question is, are we going to see a, a fairly unanimous court? Are we going to see yeah. a broadly, you know, a very, very closely decided court? How are we going to see this? And again, this is an area that doesn't have a lot of, you know, it, whatever comes There's no down political this, stakes not attached to, get, to it, yeah. right? Yeah, this is this is one area where if you want to learn a lot about kind of the the disposition of the judges, IP is a good place to do it because. There's no real broader uh, social slash political stakes attached to this. Yeah. It's really just pure jurisprudence. How do you interpret the statute? Uh, and what do you think the policy, yeah. what should the policy yeah. be? Or even what was the objective of the policy yeah. when it was first done? Yeah. So this is where you see kind of the court operating in its sort of purest um, exercising judgment form of trying to sort through all these doctrines just come up with what makes sense and is going to be administratable by the lower courts later on. Anyway, so that's the posture of this. The Second Circuit has ruled on the Andy Warhol 
copyright dispute, and it is being sent to the Supreme Court to look at. But we're going to talk about what the Second Circuit decided. The posture is that uh, Warhol sued Goldsmith to declare non-infringement. Goldsmith counterclaimed for copyright infringement, the claim that they would have brought in the first place, uh, seeking damage and injunctive relief. And the district court ruled on a motion for summary judgment filed by the Warhol Foundation. We should probably talk briefly about what that means. The main thing it's important to take away from that is it means a jury never looked at this. Yes, a jury never looked at it. And technically, a fact finder never looked at it. It's one of those things people don't have. If you don't have a jury, you can just let a judge as a fact finder. But it means that nobody has considered the actual facts of this case. They have considered purely the law of this case with the facts most favorable to the side they are ruling yeah. against. Yeah, so what, the way summary judgment works, the only reason to have a jury is if the parties don't agree on the facts. The judge can apply the law. Yep. They don't, you don't need a jury for that. Uh, but if the facts don't agree, or the, the parties don't agree on what the facts are, then you need a jury to decide which facts are correct, and then you apply the yep. law to those facts. That's what the verdict yep. means. So a simple example of where this would be is, were you speeding? Well, if the speed limit is 65, and we know you were going 70, the answer to that question is yes. There is nothing in dispute. Yeah. The law is clearly 65, and you were clearly going 70. But we never actually know that. Yeah, we never <laughs> actually know that, because the question is, we know the law is 65, but in most cases, we don't actually know how fast you were going. You could have been going 60, you could have been going 70. That's a dispute of fact. What we have is a radar reading from a cop's radar gun. Yeah. But we don't know if that's actually how fast you were going. Were you accelerating? Were you decelerating? Is the gun accurately tuned? Was it pointed at the right car? Yeah. There's a lot of questions There's a lot of there. margin of error. So built even in. where we have a black letter law, you can't go past 65 miles an hour, uh, there is a potential dispute of fact. Now, in practical purposes, uh, the jury's going to believe the cop, not you. So yeah. just pay your Well, and even as the thing is that you look and say there's a question of fact because of the fact that we don't know how fast you're going. Now, if you told the cop I was going 75, you don't have a question of fact. Admission against interest. Admission against interest, you don't have a question of fact. You told them you're going 75, so therefore you are. That's why, by the way, when they pull you over, they ask you if you know why. They're looking for you to admit, yes, I was speeding. <laughs> okay, done. <laughs> case over. So uh, in this case, uh, the Warhol Foundation moved for summary judgment uh, asking for a finding of fair use. This is a little unusual. If you've listened to us at all, you know that fair use is one of the most fact-sensitive, context-dependent determinations uh, that there are. And so we usually see this punted to a jury uh, because it is so fact-specific. But in this particular case, the judge decided that even assuming that all the facts um, are, are in favor of Goldsmith, she still loses as a matter of law. Fair use is a matter of law. And the reason they decided that is that although, as a, basically the Goldsmith port, uh, photograph portrays uh, Prince as vulnerable, as anxious, as a little insecure, um, whereas the Warhol figure... Uh, takes all that out. Uh, that's kind of Warhol's style, is to make it bright, bold, uh, maybe even a little obnoxious, yeah. uh, colorful, audacious. This is a joke here. Are we at the district court or are we at the circuit court? This right? is the district court. District court, right? Yeah. you said circuit court earlier, I just want to point that out when you said yes. that was how it found. Yeah, this is the district court, the very trial first court. court. Very yeah. first court. Uh, you know, and this, because this is how Warhol does his stuff. Iconic. Larger than life. Yep. Uh, found that was what they what we call transformative. It took the original photograph and turned it into something else. That makes it fair use. Uh, and then, as you might imagine, uh, Goldsmith appealed, saying, yep. I should not have lost, I should have won as a matter of law, or at a minimum, I should have gotten to go to a jury on this question. Then the Second Circuit ruled, and they reversed, reversed. and held in favor of Goldsmith, to our knowledge, the only Warhol loss 
And, and frustratingly, yeah. killing our joke about the Warhol rule. Well, and if you remember, we actually joked about this in a prior episode where we actually joked about, is this the end of the Warhol rule? Turns out, yes. <laughs> you know, it, it turned out, you know, yes, at the time it was the end of the Warhol for rule. For now. I mean, but <laughs> we'd have the Supreme Court coming in. So now we're going to talk a little bit about uh, why the Second Circuit reversed. Uh, and this will get into the fan fiction questions because we have two things in the law here that are inherently at tension with each other. So in fair use, there are... The key thing to keep in mind, also to keep in mind, we're talking about in conjunction with this, we are talking about copyright. Copyright. This is a good case to, to focus on this, because a lot of times in fan fiction, a lot of other places, you also have trademark claims. Yes. If you're dealing with something which is commercial and has trademark. Not in play here. Not in play here. And that's an important thing to keep in mind, probably part of the reason why the Supreme Court is interested in this case, yes. is because this is pure copyright. We are dealing with a photographic image... Now, yes, we have some likeness rights of prints underneath this, but those are almost certainly covered by an underlying contract and yeah. not an issue. Yeah, Pr so Prince's estate is not involved in this. Yes, litigation. Prince's estate is not involved. So we have something that's a very, very clear copyright issue, pure copyright issue, asking the question of we have starting photograph, which is then Warhold, to use it yep. as a verb, um, <laughs> you know, to turn it into this pop culture icon using it. Now, there's no question it is a reproduction of the original photograph, which has been modified. That is what we're talking about. Again, no question of fact. That is what happened in conjunction with this. Now, the issue with it is, is this a fair use? Is this modification, this change, a fair use or not? So the, the fundamental tension here is between the fair use doctrine and something called derivative works, which is something that a lot of people who are sort of uh, armchair lawyers and copyright think they know about, uh, but they, they don't actually. It's a little more <laughs> subtle. Uh, and even amongst lawyers, this, this nuance can get lost because we kind of say, oh, derivative work, it's derived from, so it's that simple. Uh, but it's, it's a little more complicated because derivative works uh, are defined by statute. Fair use isn't defined yep. by statute. Just the factors we use to figure out when it happens are listed. Yeah, and there's a statute which demands that there is a fair use, that fair yeah. use does exist. Yeah, it's section 107, uh, title 17. Uh, so let's talk about the fair use factors. This is actually a codification of what was originally just a Supreme Court decision saying, well, we have this thing called fair use. Sometimes copyright infringement ain't. And it yeah. ain't when it's a fair use. And they listed the factors that they use to figure out when it's a fair use and when it's not. When Congress rewrote the Copyright Act in 1976, they codified those. They took those things out of the case and they made it part of the statute. The problem is the court didn't say in the first case what, what a fair use is, yep. and Congress didn't either. So let's go through the factors. The first yeah, it's, one... It, it's what they call a balancing test yes. in the law. So basically what this means is that we have to look at factors and decide how they weigh on the various sides as to what it is. And whichever side ends up the heaviest wins. Yeah. And practically speaking, there's basically two that tend to dominate the analysis. Yeah. Uh, with a third one that is sometimes relevant, but usually drowned out by the other two. And then a fourth one that is almost always ignored. <laughs> So, although it shouldn't be, it all shouldn't the courts be. agree it shouldn't be. So the first one is the one we're going to focus on. It is uh, the nature and purpose of the use, sometimes also known as the transformative fair use test, uh, is the new work. Okay, now these, these tests focus on different works. Some focus on the original work, some focus on the new work. This one focuses on, the, on both, really, is the nature and purpose of the use, the new use uh, sufficiently transformative of the original work. Okay, that seems simple enough. Except we have the derivative work rule. Yeah. Uh, under the copyright statute, only the author of a work is authorized to create derivative works or to authorize others to create yeah. de derivative works. And that's the thing that came to mind here. The transformative fair use test is saying, is this a copyright infringement, which is essentially not a copyright yeah. infringement? Not an infringement because it's transformative. The derivative work thing says, just because you made a change, you made a derivative work, 
does not mean it's not copyright infringement. So yeah. we kind of have twin double negatives here that are going up against each yes. other because one's trying to figure out is it not not okay, and the other one's trying to figure out is it not not, 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 a not, not okay. <laughs> so let's let's talk about derivative work. Here's the definition. I'm going to read this. I know you guys don't like it when I read stuff, but this one's brief. A derivative work is a work based on one or more pre-existing works. That's yeah. the definition. That's very broad. God, yes. <laughs> I mean, what's not based on something else, right? Uh, but then they give an example, such as a translation, musical arrangement, dramatization, fictionalization, motion picture version, sound recording, art reproduction, abridgment, <laughs> condensation, or any other form in which a work may be recast, transformed, well, okay, transform. or adapted. So a derivative work is a transformative new work. Mark. Okay. So literally in the statute, it states that a derivative work can be an artist, you know, reproduction that is transformative. They give us a little more hint. A work consisting of editorial revisions, annotations, elaborations, or other modifications which as a whole represent an original work of authorship is a derivative work. So applying that on its terms to the Warhol, if he has made elaborations or modifications which as a whole make his new work an original work... It's a derivative work, work, which, just to be clear, means it's also a copyright infringement. Yes. Which is weird. If he's made it into a whole new work, he has infringed the original copyright. That's basically what this section says. And, and, and that's the, what we're getting at here is the fundamental problem between these two things and what we're really bumping into. And that's the and why it's confusing yeah. and hard to understand. And it's also a reason why we're po focusing on this case and the idea of this being fan fiction and everything else. You're looking at the copyright statute. And the copyright statute basically says if you base something on somebody else's work, it's your own copyright. It is subject to its own copyright. It's its own work, but it's also a derivative fair, derivative work, and therefore is a, a copyright infringement. infringement. And we see this a lot. It's a common misconception. I uh, I follow the copyright forum on Reddit. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a lurker there, and I, this is the most common question I see. Is I've 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 taken like someone just posted this. They took some other work and then they redid the entire thing as an animation, and like it's all original. Therefore, I haven't copied anything. It's a derivative work, yeah. okay? It's based on the original, and it's been recast, transformed, or adapted into a whole new work. But it's still an infringement. Yeah. And, and the thing about it is, is it's what, what's caused the problem here is it's really hard to classify what these things are. And we have a technology problem. One of the best examples that's always thrown out, if anybody's ever seen it, the very first motion picture ever made was filming a play. Yeah. That's, that's a derivative work. work, without any question, and a copyright infringement. But like that was necessary in order to actually get the technology to come forward. And, and there's, a, there's a discussion that's been made in conjunction with copyright law and sort of history and things like that, that the only way new technologies ever get adapted is to originally infringe copyright. Yeah. The vast, a huge percentages of, of writers and artists get their start by infringing copyright. And, and it's not surprising. We all do this. Yeah, that's how you learn to paint. That's how you yeah. learn to draw. That's how you learn to play music. You, you, you reproduce works you like. Or yeah. just things that, that teach you something technically. So yeah. this is in some sense educational. Which brings us to our next point. Yeah. Um, the, the statute, fortunately, the Fair Use Statute, Section 107, does give us some examples of things that are transformative fair uses as opposed to transformative derivative, derivative works. works. And they are... Criticism, commentary, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. And the most famous judicial uh, exception that's been added onto that is parody. So all these have something in common, which is that you can't really do any of them unless you make some use of the original work. Yeah, and, and the real thing here, and I think it's, we were talking about this before the, the show, and I think it's a really accurate thing. 
the stereotypical derivative fair use, transformative yeah, fair use, the text, is criticism. Textbook example. Yeah, yeah, that's the textbook example as to what it is. Because it is impossible to do a movie criticism without specifying what occurred in the movie. Yeah, you got to describe the plot. You might want to identify the actors. You might yeah. talk about some key lines of dialogue. Likewise, literary criticism. You're going to have to describe the book. Uh, and in doing a movie criticism, it's a visual narrative. You're going to yeah. have to show some stills from the film to make your point about how things are framed and blocked and done. And for parody, you can't make fun of it if you're not copying it. If you're not copying it, yeah. Now, now keep in mind, many parody artists actually do license the works. Yes. Because of concerns we're, we're around Weird Al famously did that. Yeah, we're it's yeah, a matter of professional respect. Yeah. To, to the point where it became a code of honor, right? Yeah. Oh, Weird Al's copying me? Well, then I, I've made it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I now have a Yankovic. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I have a Yankovic, I can't eat my foyer. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's those kind of things. But the, the thing that I think you really get into with this is to keep in mind that when we talk about these kind of things and the idea behind these things are transformative fair use, you kind of look at it and say there's a purpose behind these, which is completely outside the purpose of what it was. The yeah. purpose of being a film critic is not making a competitive movie or even making a movie at all. You're doing something completely different yeah. um, than making a movie. Likewise, news reporting. News you reporting. Know, research, yeah. academics. So these things all kind of make sense how it's a, it's a completely different use that necessarily must use the original yeah. work. Education is another example yeah. that gets thrown out there a lot. You know, If you're going to go down to you know, your local art museum and you're going to you know, copy a Van Gogh, that's not an issue. It's not under copyright yep. anymore. But if you want to copy a Warhol to try to learn the style, learn how he prepares his art, that's also probably not a copyright infringement if you're using it to learn how to make yep. the art. And what's or called to teach somebody. Yeah, or to teach somebody yeah. because it's called an educational use exception. Now, the problem with it is, is that only really works if you're doing it to educate yourself, which means you're clearly not selling the result in the work. Probably not. And that's where these things tend to fall apart under education. You're going to say, well, I'm learning how to do it. That's educational. No, because you're selling it. It's not educational. And then you also run into trouble where you have educational settings that are for profit. Yeah. Uh, courts are a little more skeptical about that. In any event, Andy Warhol was not engaging in criticism or commentary of Goldsmith's photographs. Clearly not. Yes. Clearly not. This was a commercially commissioned work uh, originally that he did for Vanity Fair, the licensed one. Then he just went off and made some new stuff because he's yep. Andy Warhol and he wanted to. Now, he is a, the thing you might, he is a professional artist. Yes. He is obviously making art for commercial purposes to promote his artwork to sell. This is not something you can look at and say this was educational, this was, you know, any of these fact criticism, any of these other yep. factors. He's he's gonna lose all of these clear factors where we'd say this is clearly yep. uh, fair use. So based on, on so far in the analysis, I think we're probably falling closer to derivative work than fair yes. use, clearly. Uh, but the Second Circuit went on to say it's also well established in the law that that isn't the only basis for fair use. You don't have to be using the original work in some way uh, that that require that you know where you're commenting on or that you have to use it. Uh, that's not a black letter rule. Uh, there aren't a whole lot of those. There was the Warhol rule, but as you know, that's now gone. <laughs> uh, so uh, you know, it, it is possible to have a fair use that is not one of those things. Um, but the general rule there is for it to be a fair use, you have to do something with it. I can't just. You know, usually you can't just copy it and, yeah. and for the same purpose. So uh, they, the courts have looked at, well, how much are you changing? Are you adding something new aesthetically? Are you adding new expression to it? Especially, are you adding expression from other works maybe to combine it in some novel and interesting way? Uh, that usually helps. But the mere fact that you have done that, which Andy clearly did here, but the mere fact that you've done that does not alone make it a fair use or it would swallow the derivative work rule because yep. a derivative work also involves adding new expression and new content to it. It says so right in the definition. So where does that leave us and how do courts figure out whether it is 
a derivative transformative work, rather transformative derivative work or transformative fair use. And they basically come down with uh, what is the purpose of the primary and secondary work? How much do they differ? Which is kind of already in that purpose we discussed about yeah, with the criticism the and commentary. Piece, yeah. um, but you can still apply that different purpose analysis even if um, it's being used for a purpose other than the ones that are listed in the statute. The problem with that in a case like this is what is the different purpose? Yeah, why did he take the photograph and why did he make yeah, the paintings? These are both visual works of art. They're both celebrity portraits. They're both pop art. Yeah. You know, now one, arguably the underlying photo is more commercial prop art. Yeah, it was commissioned. Yeah, whereas the, the latter is something that was sort of generated by an artist, more a museum piece. Yeah, more more sort of a, um, extemporaneous um, inspiration, maybe. Yeah, but do we really want to start classifying artists based upon whether or not they sell their work or don't yeah. as to whether or not they're an artist? This, this is the hard part you get into with these questions. This is why, in some sense, this case is a great case for the Supreme Court to take up. Because you see in some of these cases previously, and I pick on one as to what it was, I found the thing as to what it was, it's MTA Records versus Mattel. If you guys know the case of uh, Barbie Girl and the song Barbie Girl by Aqua, that was asserted to be a, um, a, a copyright infringement and a trademark infringement um, you know, by Mattel over, over the, the phrase Barbie. There you have completely different uses. You know, Barbie's a doll and this is a song. You know, you've got completely different things. So and that's you, in this derivative work definition. It says yeah. right here, musical arrangement. Yeah. And so those are the kind of things you bump into, you know, in conjunction. Here we have photograph and screen printed photograph, both generated by artists, and I mean legitimate artists, mm -hmm. who make their livings selling art that they arrange, that they generate. They're similar. They're of the same subject matter. You know, these are about as similar as they get. Yeah. You know, from outside, what is the physical artwork? You know, so no, that's exactly right. And, and the Second Circuit was wrestling with the question of how do we assess the purpose? We'll take Goldsmith at face value. Her purpose was to show Prince as a vulnerable person. Take Warhol at face value. His purpose was to take that same photograph and transform it into showing the same person in the same photograph as a larger-than-life, iconic person. Uh, so their artistic intentions are different. And so the question is, do we look at what they meant? Or do we sit back as art critics and look at what the actual different purpose is? Do we look at it from the perspective of a jury and what the average juror who probably knows nothing about photography or art would yeah. think? And then, and ultimately, what we should all be thinking about is, do we want judges and juries sitting as art critics to decide what's basically a, a commercial question of who owes who money for what? Yeah, and the real problem with this thing is, and this is where you get into it, the difference between these, and Ben hit it right at the beginning, the two artists say the purposes of their photographs is to show prints in a different light. One was to emphasize him being new and uncomfortable. One was to emphasize him as being a pop icon. Essentially different points of his life. Yeah. We can look at it and say that's what both artists intended. I mean, I think we can say that's you know, what they did. But should we have a jury, should we have a judge being the question of saying that's either right or wrong? Like that's actually expressed in the work or not expressed in the work? And when we're doing this, we're really arguing about is the work a copyright infringement? You can infringe something with no artistic merit or purpose whatsoever. It can still be an artistic work. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, you can infringe an advertisement, which is not intended to be, you know, you know, something artwork generated. It's intended to sell product, you know, and, and those are the kind of things where what you really have as a problem here is we have this issue where in some sense, our difference and the argument that it's transformative is that I intended to make a different thing out of it. And that's just a subjective 
assertions of, of artist. various artists, which can be manufactured, you know, post hoc. Yeah, you very know, easily. To, to serve the purposes of a legal case. <laughs> We're not saying that's what happened here, but the, the court's aware that you could do that. Yeah. And in any event, the, the intent is subjective, right? I mean... They, they may have subjectively intended this. There may be contemporary evidence supporting that. But at the end of the day, does that just mean that to protect themselves in a fair use argument, what Warhol should have done is taken notes at the time that says, here's what I mean. But then he's sitting trying to guess what Goldsmith's going to say she meant. <laughs> yeah. It's just, th- this is not what one artist's doing, right? They yeah. shouldn't be reduced to making lab notebooks of their of their artistic <laughs> process. Yeah, and, it's, and that's our problem here, is we've got a court looking at this and saying our differentiation is the artistic process, the artistic vision related to this, but we have to make an objective determination, not a subjective one. Yeah. An artistic vision is nothing it's inherently but subjective. subjective. And then ultimately, at the end of the day, the overarching purpose of these is the same. They're works of visual art. They're yeah. meant to be displayed and viewed and enjoyed, right? It's not like a situation where I'm making a translation or I'm making a play out of it where it's a completely different purpose than like a book, yeah. you know? So, but um, even those are 100% derivative works. Yeah, those so are derivative works by statute. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, um, I'm trying to think of another good example. Or a parody. You know, it's a different purpose. I'm not making uh, a parody of something for the same yeah. purpose. I'm making the parody to make fun of the original. Well, and that's where I think the, I, I like to pick on the Barbie Girl case as an example. You know, one of the things was that they asserted that the, the use of Barbie was defamatory in conjunction with their trademark. But part of the argument is, is you know, no, it's, it's a song. It's a work of art. Work of art oftentimes makes fun of parodies or defames famous things as part of its, its artistic vision. You know, I mean, that's a well-established thing in music. Um, you know, so we have that. This is the difficulty here, and, and yeah. this is what we kind of want to get across in conjunction with this and why we think this case is so interesting and why we did this episode on this case. And the court recognizes this. They say, again, I'm going to read briefly, they say, in conducting this inquiry, uh, the district judge should not assume the role of art critic and seek to ascertain the intent behind or meaning of the works at issue. This is so both... This is so, both because judges are typically unsuited to make aesthetic judgments and because such perceptions are inherently subjective. That's exactly right. You know, yeah. who, who can sit down and say, well, I'm in charge of what art means? Nobody, nobody can do yeah. that. Nobody should. And keep in mind, when we say this thing like the idea of, of Warhol, if we say, hey, screen printing this Warhol, you know, Warhol screen printing this photograph is a transformative fair use, that arguably means that me, as an unknown artist, can now screen print a Warhol. And it's a transformative fair yeah. use. So you, you've got a real interesting sort of, you know, dichotomy here of saying we've got to keep in mind that whatever we say, if we say this is allowed, other people can do this to both of these works as well. If we say this isn't allowed, you can't do it to either of the two works. Yeah. Plus, it couldn't be done in the first place. So you've really got this difficult case. The other place that actually, if you guys are into sort of Supreme Court jurisprudence, that you bump into this is the definition of pornography, which is actually one of those that's sort of a running joke. Yeah. And I always remember, I, I, I had Larry Tribe as my you know, a, a constitutional law professor, where he always commented, I always remember him talking about, how does the Supreme Court determine whether or not it's pornography? Do they all you know, drop down to the dark basement of the court building, watch it, and decide whether or not they liked it? Yeah, <laughs> like, you that's know, not it. <laughs> stuff like that. Potter Stewart said it, Mr. <laughs> Justice Potter Stewart said, uh, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. Um, and it's a famous quote, you know, it's what it is. The Supreme Court's kind of recognized, like, we have trouble doing this. We, if there is a it's an artistic judgment, standard, right? It's an artistic judgment. And 
we don't want the courts making these artistic judgments to the extent we can avoid it. And that's really what the courts are saying here. So where it ultimately came down is we need to try and look at this from a reasonable point of view. And the question is whether the new work's use of the source material is in service of a fundamentally different and new artistic purpose and character. New meaning different from the original, not like, like nobody's ever done this before. Uh, such that it stands apart from the raw material used to create it. And they basically came down and said, you know what, in this case... Uh, there can be no real meaningful disagreement that they're both works of visual art. Uh, they are both portraits, and they're both of the same guy in the same stance. Yeah. So, uh, basically, it's just not different enough. Yeah, and that's that's really what the court said here. And this is, as we joked about, this was the sort of first finding against the Warhol rule. That, you know, no, that Warhol did not do enough to this photograph to make it separate. That's basically what they said. Now, one thing to keep in mind, I just want to sort of mention, courts recently have been leaning more this direction in the music industry. And the example to it is this music sampling. So when you get into music, copying three notes of a song as a sample into your song, or even copying three notes of a song not as a sample into it, can comprise copyright infringement mm -hmm. because you have sort of a piece of it being copied. And that's not transformative fair use, even though the rest of the song is different. Well, that's really interesting, you know, so you get into, you, you, you kind of look at it and say, but wait, isn't sampling, you know, the whole purpose of like hip hop music is sampling. There's a whole grounds of music. Yeah. Which all has to be licensed, which is yes. all, you know, essentially copyright infringement. Which they do anything. now. If you're, if you're a sample artist, you come into the studio, you have to clear all your clips. Yeah. And famously, I think it was the Beastie Boys. Anyway, they were big samplers. This all changed in the 90s. It was actually, if you remember Bismarck, uh, yep. uh, a famous kind of comedic, uh, he got in big, big trouble for sampling uh, a work by some, I don't remember his name, uh, like an Irish, like uh, soft you know, music type, like a Kenny G type almost. Uh, this Irish guy was just irate that he mm -hmm. used like a sample of a piano lick that anybody could have sat down and played, you know, in, in like 10 seconds. But, you know, hiring a session musician to come in and record it is a pain in the butt. And that's part of the culture of hip hop and, and rap and the DJ scene and sampling uh, is that you are using these original pieces, sampling them and then remixing them. That's where the artistry comes from. Anybody can just sit down and record something. It's harder to take these disparate pieces and combine them. Bismarck, he got into a lot of trouble and was ahead his wrist of... Uh, uh, um, heartily slapped for it. Um, and after that, a lot of the sampling artists started just re-recording the licks they want because you are allowed under the statute to make a new recording that is a sound-alike, that is audibly indistinguishable yep. from the original as long as it is, in fact, a new recording. Um, now, there is a limit to that. Madonna had, or rather her producer on Vogue, had sampled uh, what they call a horn hit. It's one chord played by like four or five trumpets uh, from a song in the 70s, and the hit is like less than a half a second. It might be like 0.26 seconds long that they used throughout that song uh, in Vogue. Uh, they were sued and went all the way to the Ninth Circuit, and uh, I think the the... the Artists that sued Madonna's producer lost because they played both sounds for uh, for um, the, her their expert witness, and the guy couldn't tell which one was which. So uh, <laughs> you know, so there there is a limit. It's called de minimis uh, infringement, where they're like, you know what? It's such a small little piece, nobody can even tell. We're not gonna you know claim a, the, a yeah. copyright infringement over 0.26 seconds of a song. Yeah. but three notes might be enough. There, there's a joke actually in conjunction with this. Uh, if, 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 I'm a big fan of the the, the comic strip Foxtrot. And there's a great joke in it where Jason Fox copyrights zero and one. So yeah. that therefore all, you know, computer programs infringe his copyrights. That doesn't work. Yeah. Um, because, you know, yes, you can copy zero, you can copy one yeah. because it's a 
minute is copying, you have to, you know. I'm, I'm going to make a copyright of a creative poster of the alphabet. Okay, but you don't now own all the letters. <laughs> yeah, you own no. all the letters. Um, yeah, and those are the kind of things that you sort of bump into, um, you know, in conjunction with. So you, you've really got to deal with this idea that says, in the music industry, we've gotten to the idea that says, sampling and creating new musical works out of old musical works is an infringement. That's basically sort of the way we've said it, or could be an infringement. And what has happened is the music industry has figured out how to license around it. Uh, we mentioned Weird Al Yankovic earlier, you know, it's what it is. That's another example. The parody was in question. At that point in time, there was some more question exactly what parody was and things like that. So he simply went out and licensed the works that he did. There are works he famously, songs he famously wrote and recorded that are not released because he wasn't able to get to the license rights to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is. I think some point in time now, it, it probably is a badge of honor um, to be able to say, you know, yeah, Weird Al Yankovic parodied one of my songs um, means you've really made it as a pop star. <laughs> yeah. Just to clarify something we said earlier, I just looked it up. Uh, looks like the Supreme Court did grant cert in that case, so they are going to hear it. Okay, that's what I thought they granted yeah. cert. Um, and so th- these, these are the issues we're dealing with around this, and this is where we come into the question. The hard part behind this is, is most of us would look at this and say, this is Warhol's art. This is what he does. This is what he does. This is what makes it a Warhol. Yeah. He is one of the most famous American artists, if not the most famous American modern artist. How can he be infringing copyright? Because this is his art. So here's the thing, though. As lawyers, this is how we look at it. Why didn't he just call... Uh, Goldsmith's foundation and say, I want to make more of these. How much is a license? Yeah. You know, and at the time, it probably wouldn't have cost very much. Yeah. Certainly less than this litigation. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and those but that's things. how artists think. Yeah. You know, they're just like, hey, it's just out there and it's, hey man, it's art. I can just make it. Yeah. And that's, again, that's where the music stuff comes from, where now yeah. you have this, hey, if you're a hip hop artist and you're going to be sampling on the background, you're going to be going to your record label and you're going to be saying, these are the songs that I need to get. But the other piece of it is, you're going to get the licenses. Because the underlying person whose stuff you're licensing is like, wait, I'm going to be in your hit song that's going to sell millions of copies, yeah. and you're going to pay me for every copy you sell? Of course you yeah, can why get would I not license. do why that? Why would I not give it to this you? This is a classic case of, uh, you know, a, a, an ounce of, um, what's, what's it saying? An ounce of cure <laughs> for the pound of prevention? Yeah, pounds of prevention for the pound of cure. Uh, the way around, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we see this a lot in the law where if... If, if you only call your lawyer after, this has, you, you, it's much cheaper to deal with this up front, right? Even yeah. with the legal fees involved, you're generally going to come out ahead by having a lawyer or even yourself. Just do this in advance. Get permission in advance. You know, there's, there's kind of a saying, better to ask for forgiveness and permission. Uh, there are times that's, that's true. Times that's true, but it's not usually cheaper. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. Is it, it may be better, but it's not necessarily yeah. cheaper. Now, um. I, you know, that probably is where, because where, there's a lot of people who get away with it, right? Warhol got away with this for decades, you know? So, and then that's, sense not having to pay yeah. for these licenses up front was was easier and cheaper nobody complained but once one person does uh, it will it will cost more than all the rest saved you combined yeah and one of the key things to keep in mind about this when he does it a lot of warhol's work is not going to be involved in this at all you know it's photographs he commissioned or he took or he purchased and owns like so he's got no problem you know owns the rights to so he's got no problem with any of these things as to whether he didn't take his own photographs i mean that's you know things that he did in conjunction with this that he also screen printed um, so we're talking about particular kinds of works with this yep. um, as to what it is. And the other thing from it is, and this is the thing I definitely want to sort of, you know, make sure people take away from this. This is not a clear question. No, this, this is, I, when, I, when I read this case 
as I'm going through it, I think my mind changed four or five times whether I thought it should be a fair use or not. Yeah. Even looking at it now, I could defend any outcome here. Yeah, and that's that's the biggest thing with this is it, it, anybody who comes down at the end of this, when the Supreme Court comes down with a decision in this, anybody who comes up and says that decision is clearly wrong does not know what they're talking about. But this is like the Google v. Oracle case, which <laughs> we should mention that, by the way, because that case was also cited in uh, the, the briefing uh, for the petition for, for cert. Um, which is interesting because the Supreme Court took pains in that case to say this case holding is just about this case holding and applies to the use of APIs and nothing else. Yeah. And nevertheless, everybody's citing it and saying, well, look, this is what this case means. So it'll be interesting to see if the court distances itself from Google v. Oracle or otherwise emphasizes that that case is limited to yeah. its facts or its technological environment. And that may be, this may be where the oft overlooked fourth factor, which is the nature of the copyrighted work is almost always ignored. Uh, Google v. Oracle may be the one case where it is not only important but dispositive. The fact that it's software makes it completely different from here, a work of visual art. Yeah, and that's, I think, the, the most interesting thing we're going to see come out of the Supreme Court. And again, the reason we're doing this episode, the reason we're talking about this, the reason we comment out this is important for fan fiction, this case, in many respects, is an extremely narrow question about what is transformative fair use versus transformative derivative work. That is an incredibly important question in copyright yeah. and in huge areas of copyright and huge implications as to what it has. But what's great about this case is it's a very, very narrow distinction of what they can talk about. There's not a lot of differences except for this one very specific one, which is it was modified to try to make the artistic vision different. Yes. And that's a subjective test, but we're talking about objective determinations here. We can't really be getting into subjective tests. Now, the court may choose to. The Supreme Court can do whatever it likes. Um, and so it's one of those things where you know you may get into it. But what we've really got here is the ability to say, what does this mean? We might actually get some clarity in conjunction with what is transformative fair use versus what is transformative derivative work. Now, knowing Supreme Court, we're not. We're going to get some no. kind of wishy-washy determination that sort of goes both ways. But you get the idea of that it's it's such a narrow question, it's such a small thing to be focused on, the difference between these two things, that we've got a very important legal question coming up here, which has very big legal implications in a lot of areas. So to throw this quickly back into the realm of fan fiction, what's the takeaway here? Uh, on one level, it is that you should have learned nothing. <laughs> or more specifically, what you should have learned is that uh, you can't really be sure, right? Yeah. Even if you have a completely original work, let's take Star Wars, okay? Star Wars is, is mostly movies. I'm going to write a 25-page a short story that is set in a Star Wars universe. If it's about Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia and Han Solo and Chewbacca and the Death Star and Darth Vader, okay, it's probably a derivative work, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I am using all their stuff, and I'm not really transforming or recasting it in a fair use way. I'm just telling another story in Star Wars, even though it's in literary form and not in narrative form, there are also books about those characters that are that are authorized and licensed. So yeah. that, that one, you're going to have a hard time arguing that it's a, a fair use as opposed to just a derivative work. Even if it's wholly original and all you're taking is the characters, they're still copyrighted. Yeah. Whereas, if I write a story that takes place on a planet I made up that is in the Star Wars universe, uh, using characters I made up that do not appear in any of the rest of the Star Wars universe, and involve a plot and story that is not told anywhere yeah. else in the Star Wars universe, and the only reason you know it's Star Wars is that at some point I say that somebody is a Jedi. 
Yeah. Or or the Galactic Empire is yeah. watching over. You us. could even be more obscure than that. <laughs> you could use no proper nouns really yeah. from Star Wars. You could avoid Force. You could avoid Jedi. You could avoid, avoid Sith. You could have characters just refer to the Empire as in the Empire, lowercase e. But you could write that story if you're good enough in a way that it is clearly in the Star Wars universe without using any Star Wars proper nouns. Yeah. Much stronger argument for fair use in a situation like that because the work is almost entirely original and there's a lot of artistry that goes into not infringing yeah. the copyright. Now, that's also getting into one of the other factories of fair use, which is how much of the original work did yeah. you copy? In this case, virtually nothing. Virtually nothing. And so the, the danger we get into with that is, in this case, the entire work was copied in the Warhol case. Yes. You know, and so what you really kind of get into is you kind of look at it and say, and, and again, I, I like the idea with this, and this is my example with this. If you come down to the side and look at this and say, this is a fair use, Annie Warhol can make this screen printing of her photograph, that means that you also sort of say, me, as a completely unknown artist, I can take Andy Warhol's photograph, screen print it, change the colors, and I also don't need a license to do that. Presumably, right? Presumably, because I'm going to make it represent a, a parody of the fact that Warhol doesn't actually have any artistic vision. Yeah. I, can, I can go with my own artistic vision that, you know, he's green of envy because of the fact yeah. that things that, you know, and I can do that. the less you change it, the better there, right? I'm going to change one color slightly. Yeah. Okay. Oh, look, I'm an artist, right? If you wanted to be critical of Andy Warhol, you could do that. Yeah. And, and that's the thing where you kind of look at this and say... In some sense, Andy Warhol is really stuck in the middle here. Yeah. Because he needs this to not be an infringement to have the work exist. But if it's not an infringement, it grants people to infringe him <laughs> even more. It's, it's a double, classic <laughs> double-edged sword. sword. <laughs> and, and this is actually one of the things that for me generally and me sort of looking at as an IP lawyer and have been watching copyright law and occurrences in IP law generally, particularly in copyright law, we're starting to see more and more of this. Um, and you see it in pop culture. You see it, again, picking on the music cases. You have all these cases where artists are constantly suing each other, saying, you stole my song. But then you have famous artists jumping up and saying, no, I didn't steal the song of unknown, insert unknown songwriter here, even though my song sounds exactly the same because I'm famous and you're not. Yeah. You know, and it's like, wait, you can't have this both ways. You know, it's... If one of these is an infringement, the other one's an infringement. If one of these is not an infringement, the other one's not an infringement. And unfortunately, what you bump into with it, and we've joked about this as a rule of copyright, is the follow the money rule, which is if it's valuable, it's not an infringement. Uh, and unfortunately, the one concern is that that will replace the Warhol rule. Yeah. That basically, if the infringement is sufficiently valuable, it's not an infringement. And it's like, wait, that's a terrible rule. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay, so um, as we mentioned before, this case is set for argument on October 12th, so we'll circle back um, after that, and once the case is decided, we'll kind of see what happened and probably do another episode on it. And we may even hit this beforehand if we get a particularly interesting amicus or something that's dropped in. We may, you know, sort of point out some stuff around that, but we'll see where that goes. All right. So if uh, this is a little different from what we usually do, so if you guys like this stuff, let us know. Um, there's actually quite a few cases that are like this. They don't all go to the Supreme Court, but there are a lot of appellate courts and uh, district court cases that involve kind of thorny copyright issues, sometimes fair use issues. As Kirk said, especially in music, you get it to a lesser extent in film as well. Um, so, you know, we, we see a lot of this. I've got a whole folder of email full of cases like this, but they're not really on point for our brand, which is uh, the sort of dorkier end of things. So uh, we don't usually talk about those in any detail, but this one um, is, is going to the Supreme Court and seemed worth our while, so we covered it. But if you want more like this, let us know. Uh, we can definitely do that. Yep. All right, uh, that's all for this time. We'll see you next time. Lorem, play us out.
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. Here we go. Okay. That's going to become our new, like, like, I'm going to put that at the end now of every one of these. Uh, after the, the band plays at the end, I'm going to add you going, doobie 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 at the end of all these. <laughs> you do it every time.